it's time for a healthy Which breakfast. Which is the number one chocolate drink? Two pizzas for the price of one. A taste so wonderfully fresh. We are in the midst of a profound change in consciousness in the world. Part of the idea of this book is to help us pierce the imaginations that we have at the moment about the inevitability of capitalism. Thanks for joining us for The Secret Ingredient, a podcast produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas, that takes you into the depths of food history and production. We won't tell you what to eat, but we can tell you why you're eating it. For KUT, I'm Rebecca McEnroy. And I'm Raj Patel from the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs. And I'm Tom Philpot, food and agriculture writer for Mother Jones Magazine. Welcome, everyone, to a very extra special edition of The Secret Ingredient. In this one, Rebecca McEnroy and I are going to turn the tables on our comrade Raj Patel and put him on the hot seat. He is a co-author of an excellent new book that we have just gotten hot off the, the PDF presses that is called A History of the World and Seven Cheap Things, A Guide to Capitalism, Nature, and the Future of the Planet. He is here along with his co-author uh, via phone, Jason Moore, who is an environmental historian at SUNY Binghamton. And the book that they've written, I just have to say, um, I've just been reading it in the last 24 to 48 hours, and it is an outstanding polemic in the tradition of Mike Davis, Karl Marx, and I'm, I'm, I say that non-ironically. This is a beautifully written, concise polemic about capitalism and food and a whole host of other things. And the secret ingredient today is one of their chapters food, or in this case, cheap food. So why don't we start this conversation by just posing the question, Jason, you know, what is bad about cheap food? I mean, isn't cheap food a bargain? When I go to the store and I buy some groceries and the bill isn't very high, I'm happy. What, what am I missing from, from in that analysis? Well, it's a fantastic question. And of course, on that basis, we're all in favor of inexpensive food so that everyone can have access to food. We live in a civilization that rations access to food through money. And part of what we do in this book is we call for really a new way of thinking through and acting upon questions of food and agriculture and indeed nature as a whole. And we say in the first place that when we think of nature and when, when we think of food, we can't separate out the human moment or the social moment from the rest of nature. That, and everyone who's gardened or spent time on a farm knows that your labor and your thoughts and your ideas are always mixed up with the earth, with the uh, water, with the seeds and the plants and the climate and everything else. So we're asking a question about food that says food and agriculture are ways of organizing nature and they're ways of not just producing impacts on the environment like as an, an ecological footprint or something to that effect but then the web of life is also producing us so when we talk about cheap food we are talking about a an uppercase c an uppercase f cheap food as a strategy of really cheapening lives and uh, human beings and work and the the 
long-run uh, processes of, of tending and caring for the earth, which were typical of many pre-capitalist agricultural systems in which care and interdependence was valued over how many calories can you produce per unit of labor. So how did you two come together? What was the impetus of this book? How did it, how did it kind of begin? Well, how did it begin? I think that, that uh, uh, of course, I'd been a huge fan of Rogers for many years, and uh, uh, I'll let him tell his side of the story, but we, we had the, the good fortune to meet, and I said uh, uh, he had been kind enough to do an endorsement for my previous book, Capitalism in the Web of Life. And I said, you know, we really need a version of this argument that unpacks some of the themes I wasn't able to get to, and that does it in a way that can really reach activists uh, and students and citizens beyond the academy. And uh, in fact, we you know we've we've been fans of each other for a while, and we've been you know sort of borrowing each other's ideas and and you know remixing them in in certain ways. And we met here at the University of Texas um, at a, a symposium that was organised in the history department here, and um, it was it was clear that. that we could drink beer together and still like each other afterwards, and um, uh, and it was also it, you know, it was also clear that, that there were there, there were things that were missing from the discussions of you know the fourteenth and fifteenth century that we were, you know that, that, that we're very, you know, very enthusiastic about, um, and ways that those discussions could really speak to stuff that's happening right now uh, in the twenty first century, and so I, I think. A part of what what was driving our engagement from from my end was look I mean Jason is already uh, a, a very prominent uh, a, a analyst and environmental historian and uh, his ideas around nature and ecology and the web of life are phenomenal um, and there are ways that they do need to be brought in conversation with other things and there, there were conversations that I was involved with particularly around food but also looking uh, to, to press at some of the ideas in world history around gender and race for example that I I, I, I'm, I was keen to work with Jason so we could explore those ideas and and that's how we ended up with this 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 book that covers not just food uh, or the history of the environment but more uh, you know that, that speaks to uh, issues on the ground right now um, and that was that yeah that, that was the impetus was to say look that these ideas deserve a wider audience than than we have in the academy and in fact in the process of getting that wider audience these ideas get better um, we're able to to do better things with thinking about race, gender, and, and even finance. We were pushing some of those ideas forward together in ways that we wouldn't have been able to do um, individually. Uh, and so that was that was part of the joy of collaboration. So, and I think if I can just add on to that, I think one of the things that that Raj and I have shared is in terms of an intellectual biography is a, a deep and passionate concern, obviously, with questions of agriculture. So that brings together work, gender. Um, political economy, power, uh, all of these relationships that really predate what most environmentalists still think of as the origins of ecological crisis. And that's a crucial point in this book, is that this industrial revolution model where it's all about cities and factories is, in fact, a, an output of much earlier transformations of the earth that had to do with reorganizing race and gender and class and work on 
on farms from Europe to the Americas. This is where we get slavery. This is where modern industrial divisions of labor are uh, developed for the first time. This is where colonialism in its modern and savage form developed. This is where modern credit develops. And so these are the themes that run through this book that present a very different picture from what we get of even of most progressive environmentalist accounts of, of ecological crisis, which don't do a very good job with history. But one of the casualties of that is they don't do a very good job with race and work and gender and class. This is a work of analysis and polemic, but it does have a central character who sort of weaves throughout the book, and that is Christopher Columbus. And I'm wondering if you two could talk us through the the sort of significance of the Colombian contact and sort of take us through the before and after and how how that shook things up. Well, this is one of the great discoveries, one of the great epiphanies that I had. Uh, uh, and Raj, uh, Raj said, well, Jason, we need to write a piece called Columbus, more than just an asshole. And <laughs> so... The, uh, and and for me, I I never I never really came to terms with that um, until we sort of had mixed our ideas and our thinking and our conversations in the process of doing this book. That Columbus, as an individual, brings together these extraordinary themes of the modern world of gender, of money, of food and agriculture. Columbus. Uh, at one point plies his trade in in bringing sugar from or attempting to bring sugar from Madeira and Atlantic Island uh, out there on the coast of Africa to Genoa. He comes from Genoa, the great financial center of the 15th and 16th centuries. So we see all of these themes of money and slaving and power and colonialism all coming together in this biography. We are hearing a lot about um, now the, the sort of rebellion against Columbus Day and, and re recognizing it instead as Indigenous Peoples Day. And in the United States, that's happening more and more, though, you know, still there, there are places in the US and uh, elsewhere in the Americas that still recognize in one way or another Columbus Day um, and have it as a, as a happy moment. Um, but I, I think, uh, again, in writing this with uh, with Jason, what, one of the things that, that really struck me was also how a lot of modern capitalism, the, the pieces of it were uh, present before Columbus discovers the Americas, but they, it comes together in this process of, uh, of occupying and colonizing places like Madeira uh, under the Portuguese. This, this is before Columbus, but then really Columbus embodies exactly what it is that modern capitalism is. I mean, if so here's why Columbus is interesting. Often people say, all right, when does capitalism start and what is capitalism actually? You know, what do you mean by capitalism? And if you want the sort of exhibit A of what that is and when it starts, then uh, the, the moment when Columbus sort of sets foot in the Americas really is a useful, um, you know, a, 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 it's not quite the birth date, um, but it's a, a, a useful kind of uh, landmark in history because he brings together, as, as Jason was saying, everything from, you know, the, the, the financing that's required in order to be able to make these circuits of capitalism work um, to the way that he describes uh, and interacts with 
uh, First Nations and nature. You know, I mean, he writes in his diaries about all the the wonderful plants and animals, and the only thing that makes him sad is that he doesn't know how much they're worth. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, here you are, you're Columbus in his first sort of glorious encounter um, with the New World. You know, a, a, an encounter that's made possible not really by his intellect so much as finance and a great deal of luck. I mean, you know, he comes across, uh, in, you know, he crosses the Atlantic in the middle of hurricane season. Um, and, uh, as, you know, as, as we record this, hurricane season is making it, itself uh, very present in the news. Um, he manages to avoid all of that, and it makes him look like an amazing navigator. He was just lucky. Uh, and he, he gets over here and he starts appraising things. And, you know, and he, he's made sad uh, not because he can, you know, he, he can't appreciate the wonderful sort of botany, but because he can't see money immediately. <laughs> uh, and that idea, you know, and, and you know, the, 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 among the first things he does is kidnap men and then women because he, he understands the, the importance of, uh, of care in the, 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 the idea of applying male labor to uh, certain kinds of work that, that he imagines would happen, uh, you know, when he brought the slaves back to to Europe, you know, he, he's as, as one commentator says, you know, he inaugurates the transatlantic slave trade, but in the other direction than we're used to it, right? He, he, he initially brings slaves from the Americas to Europe, and he, you know, there's so much about Columbus that actually helps us understand what capitalism is in practice, uh, that it is about certain transformations around nature, around uh, work, around money, around care, around food, energy and lives. Uh, and that's why Columbus is, is so interesting. It's not just that he's a jerk, uh, but he that he's the, the very spear tip of capitalism and his, you know, the, the fact that he is such a magnificent ass uh, in everything that he does and writes uh, makes it makes it clearer to us now quite how horrific capitalism continues to be. Yeah. There's one thing that I that struck me about your book, which is the use of maps in it, and and it's this kind of like a beautiful layering of like, here's the f- way that the physical world changed in our imagination, you know, and, um, and what capitalism did to the maps of the world. Can you guys talk a little bit about that? Well, that's so it's so important. And uh, this relates to the question of cheapness and what is cheap nature. And it also relates to the force of a of a of an intellectual revolution, which was really more than one, but which uh, emerged during this period in which space became flat, so you could represent it on a map, you could stand outside it. Time became linear, uh, so that you could measure it, and nature became external. So the only way you can have a civilization based on endless economic growth and high levels of profitability, as we've seen for five centuries, is by radically cheapening the life and work of not just of humans, but of the rest of nature. And the way the how Columbus represents this is that that Columbus really opens up this audacious moment in world history. And and I would say this is every bit as important as the steam engine or the automobile engine or the internet today, probably more because it's really the basis of all of these latter developments. The the development of new ways of seeing and representing the world, including maps. So the map is every bit as important in the history of the modern world as the steam engine. And once we start to see that, we also see that the whole point of mapping as Raj just pointed out, was to map what was valuable or potentially uh, valuable. So this is Columbus's eye uh, um, as an appraiser of what might be worthwhile. 
of what might be profitable in that in a very specific sense. So the modern world, going back to Columbus, and I think 1492 is as good a birth date as we can find, and I don't think 1492 is over either, and that's why we're still struggling and debating over it, is that, that this opens up a civilization that's organized on an either-or principle. Now, that sounds very abstract. What I mean by that is nature or society or man and woman, or black and white, or the West and the rest. So there's this binary code. Now, here's the punchline about nature and society, that most human beings, women, African slaves, indigenous peoples, even many Europeans, Slavs, Jews, etc., were not part of society. They were expelled from membership in humanity, in society. And then, as we know, there have been a long series of struggles around that expulsion. So that's a really fundamental moment in the history that we are a part of today, that if you think of environmentalist politics today, it is still very much about protecting nature, about sustaining nature. It has taken up the mindset of the colonizer. And this, that's a history that uh, doesn't begin only with Columbus, but he embodies this. And then we in the book trace the impact of this kind of thinking that's then taken up into real-life practice, the practice of colonial powers and capitalists and other powerful people in remaking a world in which many people were not part of society. They were expelled from it. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, and, and it, it that that sort of psychogeography um, matters in 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 some very real ways. I mean, so Columbus, for instance, thought that uh, the world was uh, sort of uh, at least the 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 northern uh, uh, hemisphere was breast shaped with Eden as the nipple, <laughs> uh, and uh, and that I, I mean, and, and I think that that's interesting because it's yeah, I mean, it betokens the idea of you know, here's a man who's all about conquering and owning and uh, carving up and selling. And here he is talking about the, the world in, in some fairly explicit sexual terms. Um, and that's reflective of and in, in a sense sort of perform performative of a certain way of uh, transforming women's bodies into things that can be owned and conquered and dominated, um, just as the earth can and should be conquered and dominated uh, and, and and I think that that, that you know and that the sort of implication that there's some religious uh, component to it a, a vouchsafing of this by um, you know by divine right uh, is also something that's very important in our story if I can just say really really quickly that this speaks to the question of capitalism as a system of cheap nature capitalism is a system that works because it doesn't pay its bills it cannot function if it pays its own costs of doing business and the primary way in which that has been enacted over five centuries is by saying, oh, look, women, they're not part of humanity. What they do is natural, so they don't really work, right? This is the conceit of capitalism that, in fact, intensifies women's work. Or here are African slaves or indigenous peoples. They're not civilized. They're not Christian. We don't have to treat them the same. They're really part of nature. And that's fundamental because every wave of great economic growth from the era of Columbus all the way to the, the golden age of the uh, 1950s and 60s has been premised on basically making four things cheap, labor, food, energy, and raw materials. And at the center of that is cheap food because cheap food and cheap labor are vitally connected. That's why in this book we have not only cheap food, but also things that maybe people wouldn't consider to be very environmental, like money 
and work and care. Now, I think one way to like really dive into the conversation is um, so the book is full of, of great writing and aphorisms. And one of my favorite aphorisms that I came across um, was one that goes, every global factory needs a global farm. And maybe that statement, we can sort of uh, dive into the conversation of how how cheap food is so central to capitalism. Well, that's right. The the reason why we can sit here and have this interview is because there is a civilization that works according to an agricultural revolution model that basically says this, more and more food will be produced with less and less average labor time. So that is the history of the modern world. And it's, it's always had a uh, kind of capital and resource-intensive moment, all the way from the Dutch and the English in the 16th and 17th centuries uh, to the long green revolutions of the past century and a half. But it's also had a deeply and profoundly colonial moment. And oftentimes the way that people think of these processes, they, they really think of them in different worlds. And, and indeed, academics debate all the time, where did capitalism begin? In Europe? No, in the, in the colonies. And in fact, what we have to understand is that the whole basis for the division of labor and the, the ability of people to be outside of agriculture is this profoundly dynamic also violent and destructive uh, uh, system that produces more and more food measured largely in caloric terms. I mean, that's a very narrow uh, sense of what food is to begin with, um, with less and less labor time. And I think what we would point out is that that can never be reduced to economics. And it's a process of cultural and social exploitation and violence and oppression that's gendered and racialized and class um, structured at every turn. And, uh, I mean, that system makes possible factories, right? I mean, it, it begins in the fields. And I think what, what one of the inversions that, and, and what one of the things that, um, you know, that, that really struck me in the, in the writing of this is that the, uh, the, you know, the, the observation that actually it's not that people get kicked off the land uh, and then they get sucked up into the Industrial Revolution. It's the being kicked off the land that makes the Industrial Revolution possible. Uh, and that's a very different way of understanding history. It's not that, you know, th th there were in industries hungry for workers on the land and uh, it was industry that therefore, you know, propelled uh, enclosure. Um, but it was enclosure that made industrialization thinkable. Uh, and uh, I think that that, that flip is, is important because that's what makes the modern factory dependent on uh, on the farm that's hidden behind it. And I just want to say that in the current phase of capitalism, uh, one thing that we're seeing is a kind of analogy to the enclosure movement happening in the global south and places like Mexico and India, where you have people being kicked off, or China is a prime example, you have being, people being kicked off the land. Um, and in some cases, there are factory jobs to employ them, in some cases, there are not. But that process continues now in the global south, right? Where it isn't—it well, it isn't always yeah. that there's this pull from the factory uh, to the countryside, but the countryside is emptied, and then either the factory absorbs them or, or it doesn't. 
And in fact, that's been the case from the beginning of capitalism, that, that industry, I mean, industry comes to cities fairly late in modern world history. I mean, really not in a major way until England in the 19th century. Before that, most manufacturing work and industrial type work occurs in the countryside and is heavily, heavily gendered, I would add, that one of the things that we know about dispossessions uh, of peasants around the world today is just how profound a burden it places on women and the processes of caring uh, uh, for families and communities. That's a long-term process that women were always expelled from agriculture disproportionately through enclosures and through the kind of periodic shakeouts of, of farming classes uh, that have uh, occurred since the 16th century. And what that meant is that really there was always an internal colonial reserve, if you want, of women's labor that could be cheapened, not just because of labor supply and these abstract economic questions, but also because what we saw internal to Europe was just as profound as what we saw with the conquest of the Americas. That was remaking through what uh, Raj, Raj calls in the book, it's a wonderful phrase, the great domestication, this kind of great, epical, violent counter-revolution against women in the early modern centuries to provide the basis for modern industry. And so this is uh, this is this is a continuation of a long process. Only today, what's out of whack, of course, is that the number of industrial jobs is not growing anywhere near as fast as the expulsion of people from the countryside. That is true. You know, we're we're sitting here and and we have um, your book on the table in various um, incantations, and then we also have this book, The Ministry of Utmost Happiness, by Arundhati Roy, and it it strikes me that these two are really intertwined because of this idea of what happiness is in a capitalist society and how that's wrapped up in the myth of having a lot of things and that will make you happy. And so there are these there's this deconstruction of happiness that happens in her book and a deconstruction of the, our value systems in your book. And um, we had on Blaine Snipstall a while ago, who was reclaiming the peasantry and reclaiming that as that had been kind of devalued through industrialization and capitalism. Um, and so my question is, do you think that little by little interrogating these ideas of value, happiness, and what we what is important in our lives can undo capitalism? Or is it, as you wrote in, in the introduction, you know, it's more difficult to imagine. Easier to imagine the end of the world than the, to uh, imagine the end of capitalism. Exactly. I mean, uh, let me add my two cents uh, <coughs> on that. I think that, that we are in the midst of a profound change in consciousness in the world. And I think that we see it particularly around the generational divide, not just in North America, but in many places around the world. And we don't know where that's going to go, but I think one of the places that it can go is what we call world ecology, which is, a, which is a paradigm, a way of thinking that says we're not going to begin with how humans are separated from each other and from the rest of nature. We're going to begin with how they are fitting together and how power and production and reproduction and, and these vital questions of everyday life and politics are, in fact, always about our relationship with and within the web of life. That's a very different kind of politics. So I think that that we need to keep that in mind. And then 
Um, I mean, I think what I worry about is a certain kind of romanticism. Like if we only change our values, then everything will be okay. Or if we, uh, uh, there is at times a kind of nostalgia or romanticism around peasantries, which have a very wretched record of, uh, amongst other things, gender relations. And uh, while we can clearly take important lessons, I think we also need to find ways to move forward. And that's going to require dealing with real power and institutional and state power. And this is what we see around Irma most recently, that there is no way for uh, community organizing on its own to deal with Irma or for the market to deal on its own with Irma, that there has to be a serious political uh, uh, intervention to deal with questions of so-called natural disasters. So you can contrast, for instance, uh, Florida and Cuba. In the United States, you're 15 times more likely to die from a from a hurricane than you are in Cuba. Wow. You know, there's also, I was thinking of this quote by Kafka, where he says, there is hope, just not for us. And I was thinking about this in terms of this book, which is like, the earth will take care of itself. You know, right? And um, do humans even need to be here? And what do you think? Well, I don't know. I mean, if you mean that we have some divine right to, you know, be on this planet, then no. Uh, but do I want humans to be alive on this planet for the foreseeable uh, geological future? Absolutely. I think hope is central. I think that there's. For perhaps for good reason, there's a lot of pessimism. But pessimism is really the easiest way out. And uh, I think a lot of the pessimism also relates to what I've seen many progressives say about capitalism, where many progressives and radicals, uh, uh, they seem to be more optimistic about capitalism's resilience than anything else. And we point out something very simple in this book, that if we look over the past 2,000 years or so, you can look at, at two moments of climate change that were much more mild than the present. One was around uh, uh, 300 AD when the um, favorable climate of the Roman era, the Roman climate optimum, comes to an end and Roman power in the West collapses which, by the way, was uh, a great thing for all the people who lived in Western and Central Europe. They uh, uh, reoccupied and squatted in the, uh, uh, the Roman villas and repurposed those, and there were uh, you know, rising well-being and all of that. And then at the end of the medieval era in the 13th and 14th centuries, you have the beginning of what's called the Little Ice Age. And again, Feudalism was thrown into a profound and systemic crisis from which it never recovered, and there was a golden age for uh, working women and men in, in late medieval Europe in the 14th and 15th centuries. Yes, it was terrible in many other respects, but uh, um, this, is, this is to show that, that these civilizations who were much less, uh, um, in some ways much less resilient, but also faced climate changes that were much milder, weren't able to survive these climate changes. Now, what we're seeing today is not just a, a, a climate change on the order of, say, the 14th century or of the 4th century. We're seeing the end of 12,000 years or more of relatively stable climate, the Holocene era. So the Holocene is now coming to an end, and we don't know what's coming next, but I can tell you from the historical experience that capitalism does not appear all that resilient uh, to what's going on. And I think that you can see just the utter 
unpreparedness of uh, the United States, of Houston and of the Houston area and of Florida, uh, where real estate developers have just you know taken over and and built everywhere, and uh, there's no there's no resilience there, and we can see it in the the, the streets of these cities that are uh, look like Venice. That's why it's a mistake to call this the period that we live in now the Anthropocene, um, and and that's something that uh, Jason's been saying for a while that that uh, actually Capitalocene is probably the better term because when you look at the origins of uh, the kinds of processes that are now uh, responsible for for climate change and uh, yeah, anthropogenic climate change, uh, it's it's not that humans are inherently carbon, you know, belching machines. Uh, but it's something about, uh, again, that these seven cheap things that has resulted in, in this, the, the, the times that we find ourselves. But what's also useful about looking historically, as Jason says, is that there's, uh, we do have these moments where other ways of organizing society can flourish and emerge. Uh, and th- they emerge in, uh, you know, in the the, the, the sort of ashes of uh, of Rome or of, of medieval Europe, and for a while they flourish and they are good, uh, and they end. I mean, you know, it's certainly in, in you know, with with the rise of, of of capitalism that they end because certain elites are able to, you know, to, you know the, 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 there is a struggle over power. Um, and the outcome was never a foregone conclusion, but we live with its conclusion now. Um, part of the idea of this book is to help us pierce the imaginations that we have at the moment about the inevitability of capitalism. Um, and as Jason was saying, you know, that, that, that's, that's a, a progressive and a radical problem, that, that we imagine that capitalism will, will endure. Uh, and I remember Jason saying um, that actually, if you look historically, I was really touched by this, that actually, um, you know, a lot of a lot of our friends say, well, yeah, surely we just have to wait for things to get that you know, bad enough that people would sort of take up arms. Uh, and you know, Jason was saying, well, they're, they're, you know, they're saying a couple of things. First of all, if things are pretty bad right now, I mean, what, how, how much worse do they have to get? But actually, the, the, the real sign of... Um, of, of sort of massive transition is, is not when there's vast amounts of human suffering, but when the current system can no longer endure and it can carry, business as usual can't carry on. Uh, and when you have that moment, change happens quickly. It's not, you know, we have to struggle for our, you know, for our lifetimes. Uh, actually, it happens much faster than people expect. Revolutions don't, you know, uh, uh, may, may, the foundations for revolutions may, may take a while, but actually the revolutions themselves happen fast. Uh, and that's a source of optimism um, uh, and, a, and a reason to, to feel, as Jason was saying, quite hopeful. And I think it's also a moment, and this is what the book speaks to, where we can have a progressive and even radical politics that doesn't value some life over others. Mm. And this was the great problem of 20th century socialism. That at first, around before World War I, uh, it was white male socialists who said, well, you know, socialism for men, and then, uh, then we'll get to the ladies, and then we'll get to the colonies. And what we've seen over over the past century is a continual and inspiring pushback against that, and continually the radical vision has broadened to include more and more humans. I think what we're dealing with today, and this speaks to to an ongoing jobs versus environment, environmental versus social justice argument, that, that what we're seeing today is that a radical vision and I think that this can happen because it's very persuasive to many people that a radical vision can say what we need to value is the care and diversity of all 
life. And so a socialist project, and you can point to even somebody otherwise as laudable as Evo Morales in Bolivia, can't do what Morales has done in saying uh, Pachamama, the the uh, uh, the uh, uh, goddess of uh, uh, sort of Mother Earth, uh, will give us cheap natural gas. No, we have to stop looking at extra human nature as a resource. We have to look at what we value in terms of the relations of diversity and care between us and the rest of nature. And that's really at the core of each of these chapters in some ways. And we show how capitalism has done precisely the opposite, fragment, and then use the fragmentation and the separation to impose tremendous violence and degradation in so many different ways. So one of the themes of the book is the concept of the frontier. So capitalism always needs a frontier. It always needs that new thing. And I think that's true with food. And I think that, you know, Columbus showing up in the Americas and sort of casting an evaluating eye on the plants and the animals and the people here is a great example of sort of the expansion of the frontier. And I'm wondering what you two think are at the current frontiers of industrial agriculture, where we are now, what are the sort of... What is the new thing that capitalism has its eye on that it's um, you know looking to conquer? Well, I think we've seen capital's project to recruit to to pursue a new agricultural revolution that's been GMOs, hmm. and biotech has been an absolute and utter failure in doing what all previous agricultural revolutions did, which was to raise yields and raise uh, labor productivity significantly. Indeed, quite the contrary we've seen, and I know that, that you know this well and your listeners will as well, that what we have seen over the past 30 years in industrial agriculture is a progressive deceleration of yield growth and a slowdown of labor productivity growth as well, which is really the, the uh, kernel uh, of reality that capitalists care about. And so what we've seen, of course, is instead of there are no more frontiers, terrestrial frontiers, and what we've seen are a series of experiments to uh, uh, try to find some marginal uh, spaces relative to the need for the system as a whole to restore cheap food. So, yes, you see plantation agriculture in Borneo, in Amazonia, but those have not counteracted the bigger picture of deepening agricultural stagnation. So I have two answers to your question about frontiers. There's no capitalism without frontiers. It's not just that capitalism is a system of not paying its bills. It's that capitalism is a fundamentally expensive and increasingly expensive system to do business within any established geographical zone. That it has to go to the frontier to find new natures, including human natures, to put to work. So what's happening today? two things. One, the terrestrial frontiers are more limited than ever before in relation to the pile of money that's looking for profitable investment opportunities in the world. So we need to know a little bit of political economy around all this. And the other thing is that the atmosphere has been used as a frontier for dumping cheap garbage, cheap toxic pollution, that is greenhouse gases. So what's happening now is that, that up to a point 
and maybe that was 20, 30 years ago, the effects of climate change were relatively mild. But now we've clearly entered in, past a, a threshold point. They're, 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 we're in the midst of a tipping point in the global climate system. That's now feeding back into the world agricultural system. So it's not just the end of the frontier, it's the implosion of that entire model. So you're seeing climate change come in and suppress productivity, agricultural productivity across the board, plus all the other problems that, that industrial ag is facing. So I think what we're seeing, and this is why food justice movements of every kind, I think, have gained so much traction, is that the capitalist agricultural model simply can no longer deliver on its own terms. And we all know that it's feeding global warming. There's no solution to global warming without a radical new agricultural model. And those frontiers are, um, you know, I mean, they're, I mean, in fact, what one of the, as we were writing, uh, what one of the ways in which that terrestrial frontier is already being breached is, you know, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos talking about their various ventures to, to head off into space. Um, and, and and in fact, you know, as we were writing, it was like, well, obviously, you know, that, that, that that's a way of, you know, here are exhibits A and B of ways in which the terrestrial frontier can never be enough, um, and off you go to different planets or different, you know, off to the moon to be able to mine and bring back yet more natures in which, you know, over which to to uh, to, to, to suck into the, to this particular series of relations. But also there is this intensification. You know, I mean, in sub-Saharan Africa, where I, I've been, you know, doing some work recently, we've been seeing um, the you know, people. I mean, I mean, absolutely, Jason's right that there are no frontiers in that. Uh, that, that haven't already been uh, conscripted in, in one way or another into capitalism. But there are certain certain kinds of relationships that in some areas are still feudal and that they're, they're being rather aggressively transformed into um, modern industrial agricultural uh, relationships uh, in, in, in some ways to, to I mean, certainly in Malawi, to, to be able to pay off debt. So again, you know, you have the story of uh, cheap food being necessary in order to be able to, to pay off the, the cheap money. Um, and that... That that process is intensifying. I mean, it, it it's a fix. It's a you know a, a band aid on a on, on a problem that uh, as as you know as we've been arguing for ages is is a, 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 it can only ever be a band aid. Uh, but you are seeing these kinds of intensifications, uh, and you know the, the the success of GMOs hasn't been to increase productivity. It's just been a way of you know allowing farmers to farm and have a second job. Um, so you know the, the, these are the these are the ways in which uh, the, the you know, these are the sort of the ways in which the, the frontiers of industrial uh, agriculture have been intensified. But they yeah uh, and into in some way expanded into into new planets. The one small pushback that I would make is that I was just in Iowa this past summer, um, and seeing that um, a huge amount of the previous year's harvest um, was not sold, and it's sitting in grain bins, it's sitting on it's sitting on farms, sitting in elevators. Um, and there's another massive crop in the field about to be harvested. And one of the reasons is that the um, dramatic expansion of corn and soybeans, not in the Brazilian Amazon, but in the Brazilian savanna, in the, um, the Cerrado. In the, in the Cerrado. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And the Cerrado is about half under the plow now. And so there's this whole other half to, to put under, under the plow. Also, Argentina still has some land um, that can be um, taken out of pasture and put into intensive farming as it's happening. And then you also have um, Ukraine. There's a, um, a huge sort of bread basket of Ukraine that you know people I was talking to in the grain markets were saying um, has not come under full industrial agriculture yet. Um, and as a result, we've got these really, really low crop prices um, that the sort of biofuel boom that started in 2006 has spent itself. And we're looking at four 
or five years of uh, now of uh, low, low crop prices. And so there is a little bit more uh, uh, cushion left in that, uh, in that process, uh, a little bit more slack in that system. Although I agree completely with you guys that GMOs have not, they've done nothing to increase yields. They've um, increased pesticide use and uh, provided some labor saving. They've, you know, actually accelerated the process, uh, even here in the United States, of, uh, of kicking farmers off the land and certainly in places like Brazil and Argentina. But I just wanted to make that addendum. No, that's absolutely right. That there is an ongoing project of intensification to try to uh, put these soils and crops to work uh, uh, more efficiently or more productively within a capitalist metric. That's absolutely right. And so what we're always dealing with is the question of the short run of three to five years, as you just foregrounded. And I think that's an, that analysis is spot on. And the longer arcs of um, sort of great economic booms in the modern world. And I don't think that all of those examples that you mentioned, I don't think that that adds up to a new agricultural revolution. I no. think that it will be more like uh, um, bailing water more effectively for a, f- a number of years before before you just can't uh, you can't bail the water anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's another footnote to the to the long green revolution that you guys talk about in the book. It's just well, part th- of it's that. right, and it, it's important not to be. Um, I mean, you know, one of the things that people will often say to me, I think more than Raj, is, "Oh, you're just saying the end is near," and don't don't uh, radicals always say that. And that's actually only been my perspective for uh, the past few years. And I think that climate change is really the the added wrinkle into this story, that I think that climate change is inducing much more serious disruptions to business as usual in ways that are in ways that make are obvious, like we're seeing with Irma and Harvey, but I think also in ways that are less obvious in terms of um, how financial markets work, how uh, um, how willing uh, um, certain capitalists are to invest long term. I think we're we're seeing some deeper problems uh, going on, and I think that we're also likely to see much more explosive and frequent uh, 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 climate-related problems all across the world that are going to fundamentally destabilize ag- the agricultural model, um, which I think also makes the argument for a different different model that would be uh, more diverse and more uh, centered on care, of the care of the humans and the, the earth who, who are doing the work. I just wanted to ask you guys, um, I really loved it the, in the conclusion of the book, the concept of reparation ecology. And I wonder if you could tease out that concept a little bit. And while you're doing it, tell us some of the things that you've been seeing around the world that inspire you, projects and initiatives and things going on that you see as examples that aren't going to end up just sort of reinforcing this logic of capital, but are charting new paths. And I have have one quick thing to add to Tom's question, because it was my last question also. And it's, you know, how did writing this book kind of change your minds about something or change your perspective or your or how you were looking at the world? 
Well, maybe I can take a stab, and then uh, uh, I'm sure Raj will have something uh, uh, worthwhile to say. <laughs> for me, this has been part There's of no the reason journey. to be sure about that at that, all. That would be a first. <laughs> um, this book has been part of a longer journey that uh, I, I and others have taken to calling the World Ecology Conversation. And I really started from the standpoint of a kind of labor-oriented socialist uh, uh, thinker and writer. And what I've, what I've been wrestling with and coming to terms with is just how fundamentally uh, led astray we've been by notions of capitalism that are centered on, on this mythic uh, combination of the economy and the environment. And that's going to cause us a lot of intellectual problems, but also a lot of practical political problems. And so when we talk about inspiring movements, I've been inspired, I think, by many of the food sovereignty and food justice movements that Raj can speak to much more effectively than I, but also by indigenous movements and other movements against extractive infrastructures around which we we saw most notably um, in North Dakota around the, the struggle against the North Dakota access pipeline where you had some of the old politics and some of the new politics come into play the labor movement in America the AFL-CIO on the one hand returned to its shameful politics of, of anti-immigrant politics and all the rest of it of the 1920s and said no we need jobs but then what you saw was a progressive wing of, of the labor movement aligned with environmentalists and indigenous peoples to point out that the need for a healthy population is, has, is part of our labor politics. And that, so what we saw there was the possibility for defense of life, defense of land, defense of uh, um, uh, the need for social justice, um, all come together, I think, in a much more powerful synthesis. And I think that that's something very inspiring that we've seen across the world, across the Americas, is how politics around defensive land have not just been the old not-in-my-backyard politics. They have been not here, not anywhere, another world is possible. And I think that we're at a moment where there are elements of the environmentalist movements, of the labor movements, of indigenous and, and feminist and other movements that are willing to see that the fate of the planet and the fate of human justice and, and equality and care are fundamentally connected. And that would be a genuinely new politics where the work of, of traditional labor, of wage labor, the work of social reproduction, of what, of what uh, academics call unpaid or social reproductive labor, and the work of nature as a whole are brought together in a new vision. And that's part of what we're speaking to with this notion of reparation ecology, of, of remembering how how these these worlds of of modernity have been violated and oppressed and ripped apart and how we can begin to put the pieces together in a way that's not nostalgic that is a genuine synthesis that takes some of the positive elements of the modern world into a new vision for what comes next well i i i, I want to to maybe end with also just asking 
that question. So, Raj, isn't this idea of reparation ecology basically bullshit? Um, <laughs> and uh, and I, th- I think the answer is no, uh, but thank you for asking. Uh, and the, the reason is, well, I mean, so, so the, 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 this idea of reparation ecology was, is, is, in a sense, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's some blue sky thinking, uh, uh, but not, not in that awful way, of, of just saying, look, um, Again, part of the problem is, as, as we've said, that it's harder to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Here's a way of imagining the end of capitalism. Uh, and part of that is to look, for example, as, well, how do we end patriarchy? Um, and some of the work uh, that Rachel Besner Kerr and her colleagues in Malawi have been doing for, for decades uh, involves helping men recognize our patriarchy and do something with that and uh, to take responsibility and to understand that going forward we can't uh, carry on behaving the way that we do and that, that in fact reparation is due and a recognition is due of, of that of those responsibilities um, and reparation is you know, often it has this idea that well it, that there has to be some sort of cash value attached to it um, but the, the harder work when it comes for example to patriarchy is not just the thinking about that cash value but thinking about well how how do you move from this this place of where you are this person who you are and move towards becoming this other person where you, you, you are unmooring yourself um and i like that exercise i you know I, and when i've seen it work it works and it works uh, and it happens quickly it's it's not the sort of thing that you require you know sort of uh, you know generations and generations of of sort of patient chipping away at uh, at big problems in small ways it's not small steps every day it's uh, yeah, insofar as it's small it's small steps every day for 5 years and then a revolution happens uh, and that's what i like about this idea of of reparation ecology is that that it is uh, an invitation to observe these big transformations as reparative and and moving towards and moving away from capitalism moving towards Towards something much better. Um, so that's uh, that's why I think that the idea of reparation ecology isn't just sort of bullshit, but it is uh, a deeper way of engaging with the politics of possibility after capitalism, a way of uh, sort of encouraging folk who've made it all the way through to the conclusion um, to exercise their faculties of imagination in ways that, that deploy uh, the, the lessons of this kind of reconstructed Marxism that we've ended up with uh, and see what it might be doing in the world in real life. What do you think, Jason? Do you, you buying that? Was it was that does, absolutely? Does, does that qualify yeah. as something? Absolutely. Possibly I mean, I think, I think that that part of this, <laughs> I'm mocking you, this healing and the possibility of metamorphosis is oh, that we need to have our truth and reconciliation moments for the different political traditions of the left, for especially for labor and socialist movements, and especially for environmentalist movements, mm-hmm. and uh, they both have. Uh, terrible histories, also inspiring histories around immigration and justice struggles and, and all the rest, and, and that we need to have, uh, especially in North America, where environmentalism really took shape as a kind of neoliberal politics uh, uh, that uh, became uh, uh, sort of fit, accommodated very quickly to kind of individualism and anti-immigration politics mm. and, and all sorts of things like that. That we need to have our truth and reconciliation moments, and that that involves being honest about a lot of uncomfortable histories. And I think that we do a good job in the book when we look at the Soviet and Chinese projects, for instance, that while these were never really outside of capitalism, they were attempts at at forging a a, uh, better world that were also deeply flawed. And I think that's that's one of the things we say in the beginning uh, that 
foreshadows reparation ecology, I think, is that this conversation that we're calling world ecology is not just about looking forward or not just about the the history in an abstract sense. It's about remembering many of the connections that were severed culturally and physically by force. And bringing the conversation back to cheap food, I mean, I think those insights <laughs> and this idea of a truth and reconciliation on the way environmentalism has been pulled into neoliberalism, I think, I think about a movement that I've been part of for 10 or 15 years that people should reimagine the, the relationship to food, they should revalue food, they should shop at the farmer's market and thing, things like that, that easily get subsumed into this in individualism where, you know, maybe I or, you know, some sort of cliched um, farmer's market shopper is paying more for food, is sort of out of the cheap food system, but in a way just creating a, a niche within the, the greater sort of... Um, you know, massive industrial agriculture system, which, you know, I can tell you from my travels in California and Iowa this summer is still thundering forward. It's still it's mm -hmm. it's not slowed down at all. Um, and if we just create a niche where we ourselves are not participating in cheap food, then it really isn't doing anything about these larger forces. And, and so it's a call for the local food movement to get po to, to politicize, to to think in revolutionary terms, not just creating an alternative to industrial food, but but also sort of uh, figuring out how to bring it down. Well, that's right. And that requires a political strategy about state power. And one of the things that has brought the world's food system to its present uh, point is the world's financial system. And, and not just in the narrow sense of, of how uh, food as commodities have been financialized, that's part of it, um, but a l much longer history of how money and credit has, has disciplined not only farmers, but the earth and the rest of us. And so we need, we need politics that take states seriously. And I, I foreground that because I think that in a certain kind of progressive politics or radical politics today in North America, but also elsewhere, there's this kind of libertarian anti-statism that goes mm. along with progressive politics. And I think that that's going to be a real problem. If we want to restructure agriculture in this country or anywhere, we have to do we have to use the power of the state to reestablish a new agricultural model that would be democratic and cooperative and and all the virtues that we would and sustainable and all the virtues we would extol. I mean, after all, that's how capitalist agriculture was built. It was built through the state sending uh, soldiers to go kill peasants when they got uh, uppity and to enforce the law of the land. You know, when you when you say, of course, truth and reconciliation, it it makes me think of South Africa, like I think, you know, was the image that comes to mind. What can we learn about that model, about what is left behind after truth and reconciliation that we might take lessons from as we think about dismantling patriarchy, white supremacy, capitalism, these types of things? Well, the, I, well, I, I think, think it I, shows the truth and reconciliation is isn't enough, enough <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, you complete me. Um, <laughs> no, Jinx. <laughs> no, but but it isn't. I mean, you know, if if you, I mean, and and I think it, it's also, you know, I, I, I think Jason and I um, uh, are both 
keen on recognizing that the state matters and that the state is always uh, always needs to be an object of suspicion, right? I mean, that, that um, engaging, I mean, we, we do need the state uh, and we don't, uh, yeah, but we don't win the state merely by stating, you know, our truth and reconciling. Um, it's, it's a permanent process of making sure that the state doesn't screw you uh, and, uh, yeah, and being vigilant that the, the, these instruments of power and these, these, appara- these apparatuses of power uh, are not used to oppress. And that's a lot of work because the state is, you know, is, is a behemoth. Uh, and it's built, uh, I mean, you know, our present carceral state is built on some pretty fundamentally racist and sexist foundations. Um, so th- the idea of transforming state power is, is not to be underestimated, and it can't be dispensed with merely by uh, what looks like a, a, a process of sort of human reconciliation when the state itself was never addressed, uh, or was barely addressed as part of truth and, truth and reconciliation in South Africa, and which is why you're, you've got the shit that you, we, we've got now in, in South Africa, where, um, you know, these these forces of state capture are using some of the unfinished business of uh, of the state's white supremacy to uh, and the narrative of, of state white supremacy to reinforce a black bourgeois class um, and enforce and reinforce white capital as well. So it's a really, I mean, I, I think that that. Uh, that vigilance uh, and that and, and the depth of that revolutionary transformation with respect to the state I think can't be can't be underestimated Raj Patel and Jason W Moore are the authors of the new book a history of the world in seven cheap things a guide to capitalism nature and the future of the planet You can listen back to this show and check out our entire archive of Secret Ingredient conversations at thesecretingredient.org or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. The Secret Ingredient is produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas, engineered by David Alvarez and hosted by Tom Philpott of Mother Jones Magazine, Raj Patel of the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs, and for KUT, I'm Rebecca McEnroy. Thanks for listening. What do you want to know about Austin? Our AT Explain project takes your questions about Austin's people, places, and things and goes the distance to answer them. Subscribe to the AT Explain podcast, find it on iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app, or go to atexplained.org.